chapter 2. Is this thing working? It is. Is it working? Okay, good. Acts chapter 2 is where we're at tonight. We're continuing on looking through our series, The Church Ablaze, our study in the book of Acts. And uh, we've really been taking time to look at, um, there's a whole lot that's happened here in the chapters 1 and 2. There's so much that is so relevant to the church age and what God uh, had promised, how God had fulfilled, how Jesus Christ had given the command. Um, We've already looked at so much, and, and I can't go back and review all of it, but we have covered a lot. Uh, we covered this, the issue of sign gifts, um, how that the sign gifts are now completed. Uh, now they were completed then, but I mean no longer are we using the sign gifts. Um, and I, I will say if you've not been part of the study and you have questions and you'd like to know our study on that, you can go back and watch that. It'll be online. Go either to Facebook. By the way, we're also now, we started about three weeks ago, we're broadcasting again now on YouTube um, and also on Twitter and Facebook. So if you don't like Facebook, you can go to YouTube. You don't have to sign into anything to watch it on YouTube. The only thing I will caution you on YouTube is it's arbitrary as to whether or not they'll throw an advertisement in there. It has nothing to do with us because uh, they might monetize it. Um, they're not mon- we're not monetizing it. Um, so, But um, the quality is good. YouTube is going to be high, high definition. Uh, Facebook will not allow us to do high definition. It's 720p. You know what that is? That means it's not high quality. It's okay for your phone, tablet, computer, but you get into a bigger screen. It's not as good. If you can watch YouTube on your big screen, um, that, that would be the, the highest quality. It's 1080p. And so for some of you that don't know what I'm talking about, it's okay. We understand. But we're trying to make it as best quality as possible. Um, and uh, I'd like it to be hearable, and you can actually see who the people are. It would be nice to not just see a smudge on the stage. And uh, so you can tell who the face is. And so, um, But if you want to check that out, um, I just want to just kind of let you know about that. You might know somebody that would be able to benefit from that as well. But if you want to go back and look at um, two weeks ago and then the, the previous three weeks to that, we really covered the subject of sign gifts. And um, if you're interested in that, you can go back and watch that. I would encourage you to do that. Um, we took a time out from Acts chapter 2 and went, and went into depth with that, um, looking at the chronological order of the New Testament, the way the books were written, the time frame of them, and seeing in that order when the sign gifts actually ceased. And so it was a very, uh, very good study. I, I hope it will help you um, to grow in your faith and also be able to give an answer. Uh, but tonight we're continuing on here in, in chapter 2. We're, our whole section we're looking at last week, this week, and next week is uh, verses 14 through 41. We're not going to read all of that tonight, um, but I just want to review a little bit what we talked about last week. You remember this is Peter's first sermon. I believe it was an amazing sermon. I believe it was his best sermon because of the results that happened from it. It was an amazing sermon that took took place. And uh, while some people um, may uh, say good riddance to hard, strong, spirit-filled, Bible-filled preaching, I say that is what we need today, a continuation of that. Not less of it, but more of the Word of God being preached. And and we see that, that, that in the early church, Peter was preaching an amazing message. And the, the very first event, you might say, of church history, as we've looked at it here in the beginning of the church there at Jerusalem, and the following of the coming of the Holy Spirit of God, Peter preached this message, and it led 3,000 people to come to know Christ as their Savior. What an amazing sermon, what an amazing service that would have been. Can you imagine being there that day? I mean, it would have been an amazing event. I would love to have been there. And, you know, I look back at it. So as we look at this, there's so much we can learn from it. This isn't just an arbitrary thing. This is an amazing. This is like an inauguration. 
He's preaching this message, and he's preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. By the way, for the very first time. That's what we call apostolic preaching when we talk about that tonight, so you understand it. It's the preaching and the power of the Holy Spirit of God. That doesn't mean you're an, you're an apostle when you do it. I praise the Lord that the apostles had a time and a place, but, and they did preach in the power of the Holy Spirit of God, but that was not just for them. It wasn't a sign gift. It was something that God expected to happen, not only in the preaching of the Word of God, but in the witnessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God wants for Christians to be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. We truly, desperately need that today. We need preaching that has the power of the Holy Spirit of God on it, without apology, preaching from the Word of God. And we need people that are empowered by the Holy Spirit of God witnessing and telling people about Jesus Christ. And, and we can, there's so much we can learn from this, this message here we see in Acts chapter 2. And, um, and so I really want to just emphasize the fact, and yes, I'm the preacher here at Lighthouse Baptist Church. Pastor Parker is a great preacher too, but you know... Um, Many churches today, preaching has taken a second uh, seat to. It's stepped behind so many other things. And we need to be so careful that we don't fall away from preaching being the most important thing that happens. It's God's appointed way of, of, of spreading the gospel. It is essential uh, to the church's mission, preaching is. It is God's ordained method of evangelism and edification. And so uh, the weakness today in churches is not because there's... Um, uh, the weakness is not because they're having too many programs and different things going on. The weakness today is the, the absence of spirit-filled preaching from the Word of God with great power from the Word of God. I can say this. Now, there's times when you're going to hear me teach, and there's going to be times when you should hear preaching. There is a difference between teaching and preaching. There is a difference between them. And preaching should be something that speaks to your heart, pricks your heart, challenges you, and causes you to make a decision of what God is saying to you in your heart. Teaching is something that builds knowledge. It builds faith. Preaching is something that is, thus saith the Lord, with great power from on high. A lot of churches today, they get away from that. They don't want to offend people. They don't want to say something that hurts people. And a lot of people don't want preachy preaching. I don't know how you can preach without being preachy. You all know what I'm talking about? I mean, I don't understand that. Now, I do believe it should be done in love, and it should be seasoned to grace. There's no question. And it should not be done in the flesh. And I need your prayers. I appreciate your prayers that I would not preach in the flesh, that God would enable me. I want God to. So I say all of that just to say that preaching is so important. We see the very beginning, the very first service, the very focus of what was most important going on that day was the preaching. And the most important part of the preaching was it was Christ-centered. It was Christ-centered. It wasn't man-centered. It was Christ-centered. We're going to talk about that. But, you know, remember the context of what's going on here. Pentecost. Fifty days prior to this, what happened? What happened 50 days prior to Pentecost? Anybody remember? Yeah, Christ was crucified. Fifty days prior to this, maybe you say 51 days prior to this, you would have had Peter denying Jesus Christ. You'd have had Peter running away. You had the disciples hiding. You'd have had imagine what they would have been going through and the feeling that they would have had knowing that their leader that they had followed and they had loved so dearly and they had grown so much in and they believed in, he was just nailed to a cross. And now, obviously, you'd be thinking, am I next? Am I going to be crucified? Are they going to put me to death? I mean, that's just common thinking. And yet now we see here the Holy Spirit comes, God anoints them with a power from on high, and Peter, he's preaching this message. And there's a huge, excited crowd that, that must have exceeded 3,000. Not everybody that's at a service is going to trust in Christ as their Savior when they hear the gospel. 
not normally. There was probably perhaps 10,000 people that heard the message that day. We don't know. But what we know is there was a lot of people that were there from all over the known world at that time, and now they come together and they're hearing the apostles speaking in their own languages. And so with that in the context of understanding what we're looking at here, look here, if you would, at Acts chapter 2, verse number 14 once again. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. Now I'm going to stop there, because we're going to be breaking apart the next few verses as we, as we look through our outline tonight in our, our study. And so here he is, he's talking to them, and he's challenging them, and he is asking them to hearken unto his voice. And last week, just reviewing, the first thing we noticed about this message was we looked at the manner of the apostolic preaching, manner of apostolic preaching. Um, notice, for example, that Peter's preaching, as we looked at it last week, it was direct, it was pointed, it was personal. Direct, pointed, and personal. And in verse 23, he says, ye have taken. In verse 36, he says, whom ye crucified. So it was direct, it was pointed. Same thing when you're preaching, it ought to be direct and pointed. When you're witnessing with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it ought to be direct and pointed. It ought to be uh, personal to the person. Uh, secondly, we saw it was simple, it was plain, it was clear. He told them about Christ. He, he challenged them. He enlisted commitment. It was c clear and simple. Even a child could understand it. Once again, same thing. When we're presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ, it ought to be clear and simple and plain that anybody can understand it. It ought not be beating around the bush. I mentioned this last week. There's people that go to churches, and they'll go to churches for years and never hear a plain presentation of how to trust in Christ as their personal Savior. It ought not be that way. People ought to be able to come into a church service uh, and just about any service and be able to know how to trust in Christ their Savior. Now, I say that. I, in a crowd like tonight, we're doing a, particularly doing a Bible study. And if I had visitors that were here tonight, I would make sure that I would always run to the gospel plan of salvation and make sure they heard it. All right? And every Sunday morning, you're always going to hear it. You're going to hear it every, every single week because you, you don't know who is going to be present. But uh, people ought to know very simply, even when we get to, the, to the, the invitation, very simply how they can trust in Christ. Thirdly, it was instructive, educational, and informative. He directed his message to the mind, instructing them um, in, in verses 14 through 21. He then hit, hit to their heart um, in verses 25 through 28, to the conscience um, resulting in conviction in verse number 23. And then the will, he challenged their will to make a decision, verses 37 through 38. And, and so we see the appeal of the gospel throughout the New Testament is always the mind, the heart, conscience, and then the will. All right, to the mind. God expects us to use our mind. Now, that, I'm not talking about man-made mind. I'm talking about thinking, all right, thinking about what Christ has done. And God speaks to us, and it touches our heart. It doesn't stay at the mind. It, it moves to the heart. And then when it gets to the heart, it creates a conviction within our heart. It ought to, unless we're hard. I talked about this on Sunday, about having a heart that is stone hard, where God wants to speak to your heart, but you don't hear the message. And it's so important that we don't do that. That's why when you preach the Word of God, it needs to hit the heart, needs to hit the conscience, and then direct towards a decision. And so that's what Peter did here. It, it was instructive, educational, informative. Next, it was biblical, scriptural, and historical. Um, if you look at uh, verse number 16, in the following verses, he's quoting Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And we're going to get back to that in a minute. And then in verse number 25, he quotes Psalms 16 and Psalm 110. He quotes David there. 
Um, and so we see here what, what Peter did. He rooted the gospel in the familiar scriptures of the Old Testament. And when the, the, a message is preached, we ought to be including the word of God. It ought not be just somebody's opinion. It needs to include the word of God. Biblical, scriptural, historical. And then lastly, it was bold, fearless, and courageous. Verse 36, do you see the courageous remark that he says there? Anybody want to say it? What's he saying there that's so courageous in verse number 36? Whom ye have crucified. Now, that's courageous. That's bold. That's fearless. And he gives that message. He didn't water it down. He didn't beat around the bush. He hit it right on the head. He hit it exactly. And obviously, he's being led by the Holy Spirit of God when he preached this message. And so that was a distinctive trait of New Testament preaching. What we just talked about, boldness, courage, no apology, telling the truth, not beating around the bush, but getting right to the point of the truth of the matter. And so that's where we left off last week. And so we looked at the manner of apostolic preaching. Tonight, I want to look specifically at the matter of apostolic preaching. That's so close. We're not going to be looking tonight, how did Peter preach? We're going to be looking at what did he preach? Specifics. I want to delve into it a little bit. The matter. And so it's worth noting that Peter didn't get caught up with social issues either. I want to just say this for a moment. Now, there's nothing wrong with a church taking a stand against abortion. Nothing wrong with a church taking a stand against leadership that is 100% contrary to the Word of God, and they're morally wrong. Nothing wrong with that. But that ought not be the central focus of the service. That ought not be the thing that you're talking about every single time. It, there, there are some churches that get out of balance with this, and they're talking about politics all the time. That, that is not what God intended for us to do. God wants us to be good Christians. God wants us to be the salt and the light. God wants us to get involved in voting. As a citizen, we have the right, we have the privilege, we have the obligation to do that. And as a preacher, I have the obligation to say when a government is against the word of God, I will call it out. But that is not the main focus of the church. The main focus of the church is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, is to preach the word of God. And I can tell you this, if we will do that, it will change men's hearts and it will change the way they vote. It will change politics in the country. It's not going to change because, uh, because people are saying words. It's going to change when people's hearts are changed. And so the main focus is what we're talking about. You think about the political things that Peter could have talked about in this message. Huh. Oh, my. There's so much he could have said. Now, like I said, nothing wrong with pointing out the bad things the government's doing. But that's not the main focus. So what, then what is he saying? All right. And it's interesting. We, I want us to look at what he did here, what he said, how he said it. And, and so Peter, he's, he's, uh, how did he preach? What did he say? Um, and, and what he said. And so the first thing um, we notice here, look at verse number 15. He says, For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. What's he replying to here? Okay, we didn't read the previous verses. What's he replying to here? What were the people making accusation of? What were they saying? Yeah, these people are drunk. What's going on here? So be, the beginning of his message, he actually is responding to what they were saying. All right? And so we see, first of all, the word of explanation. He says, these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it but the, is the third hour of the day, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he goes and quotes Joel. But there's something interesting here. He, you know, it's like he's saying drunk. How could these men be drunk? It's, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. 
And then he explains in verses 17 through 21 by quoting Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. But here's the crucial, crucial question I want us to think about tonight. Is Peter saying in verse 16 that Joel's prophecy was fulfilled at Pentecost? Now, before you answer the question, I need to say something. Last week when we read that, I made the comment that the fulfillment, you can go ahead and take care of that. Call God. Tell him to call God now. No problem. My, my phone, my watch went off last week, and it wasn't God calling anyway. Don't worry about that. All right, going back to the question then. You got it yet? It's off. I don't know. It's all right. So here's the question. Look at verse 16. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Do you see it? Is Peter saying that Joel's prophecy was fulfilled at Pentecost? All right, so there's the question. I need to make a correction of something I said last week. Last week, as we read through that, I said this was making mention of what was happening at Pentecost. And when I said that, it didn't feel right because as I read it, so I went back and looked at it this week, and it's not true. So sometimes if you make a mistake, you need to correct it. And so the reason why I say that is because if you can easily misunderstand it. As a matter of fact, there's a great number of people that will say that's exactly what's being said here. That's not the truth. You look at it a little bit deeper, and I'm going to show you why. When you look at it deeper, he's definitely not saying that. Um, he know, Nowhere does he say the word fulfilled or fulfillment of prophecy. Nowhere does he say that. Um, and, and so he doesn't even suggest that it's fulfilled. But he is quoting scripture. And, and so then what is Peter saying? Well, well the context shows that, that the Jews were mocking the apostles. We've already talked about that. We've already established that. They're mocking them because they're hearing them speak in their language. They suppose they were drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. And in order to counter the Jewish mockers, Peter says, verse 16, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is that is what he says. This is what Joel said. Now, in essence, he says, stop your mocking, for this is similar to what Joel said would happen when God pours out his spirit in the millennial kingdom. Now, he doesn't say that, but if you look at the context of Joel, what Joel is talking about, that's exactly what Joel is talking about. It is not at Pentecost. This, this was not a prophecy for Pentecost. This was a prophecy for the millennial kingdom. Now, last week I just said you got to be careful in the Bible when you look at prophecy to put it in the proper place. When you look at the Gospels and you see what Jesus was speaking about, when Jesus was prophesying of his, of his basically, of the millennial reign, of the, the, the coming of Christ, you have to put it in the proper, if you don't do that, you get things out of context, you get things messed up. And so, I, I, this is talking about the millennial kingdom. Now, there's a second reason why Joel's prophecy was not fulfilled at Pentecost. Joel said that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. Did that happen at Pentecost? No, of course not. That's why I, I will tell you, when I read that last week and I said what I said, I had this check. And with a check, I went back and looked at it and I said, hmm, okay, i got to fix this. When you're reading the Word of God and something doesn't make sense, doesn't make plain sense, then there's a saying that goes with this, but read the con the con use common sense, but read the context, go back and look at it and, and, and delve in a little bit deeper. And I did that. So we see here, okay, so this couldn't have been Pentecost. God didn't pour his spirit out on all flesh. 
um, we see that. He didn't do that. Another thing, the third reason why Joel's prophecy was not fulfilled on the day of Pentecost is clearly seen. Look at verse number 19. Notice what it says here. This is one that really jumped out at me. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire, vapor and of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great notable day of the Lord come. Man, you look at all scripture. What that's describing is not the day of Pentecost. What's it describing? The second coming, the day of the Lord. It's talking about the second coming. It's talking about the things that are going to happen prior to that, the signs that are going to happen prior to that. This is not talking about Pentecost. And so these signs belong to the time of the second coming of Christ. You see, what Peter was saying was this. Pentecost is similar to what Joel said that was going to happen when God pours his spirit out through the millennial kingdom. But he's, he's, saying, he's using that, but he's not saying this is a fulfillment of. He's saying even God is, that's going to happen. This is something that God is going to have happen. And so he's not saying that's what happened that day. He's saying it's going to happen. And so there's, there's, I can't look at this and interpret it any other way. These things did not happen. Um, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, these things, this is all descriptive. If you read scripture on the second coming and you look at the day of the Lord, you look at the tribulation, this is what this is talking about. This is not talking about Pentecost. Um, but, but Peter is reminding them that, that, that what's happening that day is not because they were drunk. It's because God was working. God was working. And so um, Peter, he begins then, and he continues with, um, the, he, he starts with the word of explanation, and then he goes on to the word of exposition. Let's go ahead and move on. And he sets out to prove that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Now, the Jews have been looking for the Messiah Everything that they did was centralized around the Messiah's coming. They were all looking forward to that time. Israel's long-awaited Messiah was something that what they were looking for, and he presents the truth that this long-awaited Messiah had come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, had come through Christ. Now, can you imagine how disturbing that would have been for a Jew? If you were a good Jew and he says these words, it would have been something that would have been very hard for you to hear. Once again, Messiah was the central figure in the Jewish thought. And so um, God had revealed this to them. I mean, you can go all the way back to Genesis and see what God had promised. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, notice what it says. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall he, the gathering of the people be. And so he was the great descendant of David, whom God had said, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And, and so, in light of this, for Peter uh, to boldly claim that Jesus was the Christ, was Christ being Messiah, to the Jews, they would have looked at that as blasphemy. They, they would have been something that would have been hard for them to hear. We know that because of how they heard Jesus. We know that for certain. You know, the same thing is true today. There, there are people that, that are, are hostile toward Jesus Christ. Do you realize even the Jews today, they don't look at Jesus Christ as being anything good at all? They still believe that he was an imposter, that he was a blasphemer. I'm talking about Orthodox Jews. They would believe that Jesus is a, I mean, he was a horrible thing. He was an imposter blasphemer. And, and so for Peter to proclaim Jesus as Israel's Messiah was to raise the most dynamic, powerful, and forceful issue possible. But he still did it. He didn't care what the people thought. He didn't take a poll 
Why did he do that? Because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. He was preaching what God laid on his heart to preach. God empowered him to preach this. And Peter's message was great because it was powered by the Holy Spirit of God, number one. And number two, because it was Christ-centered. It was Christ-centered. Let's have a look at that, that, the, the message for a moment. Let's break it down and let's see what Peter talks about. First of all, we see in verse number 22, he speaks of Jesus of Nazareth, a man, in verse 22. There we see the incarnation. Jesus of Nazareth, the man. This was the way of which the Lord was known during his earthly ministry. He identified him with his hometown of Nazareth. He was a Galilean. He was from, the, from Galilee in the, the city of Nazareth. And that name for our Lord reflects his wonderful condescension when he came down from heaven, leaving the glory of heaven to live in, in a humble village there in Galilee, Nazareth. I mean, I try to grasp the concept of that. We've talked a lot about that at Christmas time. To think about Christ coming down, Jesus coming down. Thinking about that our Savior, who was co-equal, co-eternal, co-creative with the Father, made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of man. What an amazing thing that is. He presents to them the incarnation. And then, Peter, he talks about authentication. Look at verse number 22. Look what it says. Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. A man approved of God among you by what? Miracles and wonders and signs. Which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourself also know. Who did the miracles? Okay, the Lord Jesus Christ did. But it says which God did by him. There you go. That's right. You see the connection? What's the connection? What am I saying? Somebody help me out. I'm trying to get you to think a little bit. I see it. It's like black and white. Yeah, exactly. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. God did these things through Jesus Christ, through his flesh. He did these things in the midst of you, as ye yourself also know. They knew. Man, they weren't far removed from this either. They had heard. Many of them had seen. Many of them were eyewitnesses of the power of Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ did. They had seen this. The many miracles performed by our Lord provided overwhelming evidence that he was who he claimed to be. There was no question if you were willing to look at the truth. That's the problem. A lot of people today don't want to look at the truth. Man, we see that so prevalent in our society today. It was prevalent then as well. Here we see that, I mean, literally from his miraculous birth to his miraculous res resurrection, all the miracles that he performed during his earthly ministry, the miraculous element was central in our Lord's life. It was miraculous throughout everything, throughout everything. It's interesting, Nicodemus, he no doubt spoke for many when he said this in John chapter 3, verse 2b. Notice there on the screen, he says, Rabbi, meaning teacher, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. He saw it. He saw that God was there with him. He saw the power of God. And so Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, he was approved of God. He fulfilled all the criteria for the Messiah. This is the message that Peter's preaching to them. And then thirdly, we see the crucifixion. Look at verse number 23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Stop for a moment. What's that mean? <laughs> He being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. What does that mean? What's that talking about? 
Anybody? Yeah, it's God's plan. Jesus Christ wasn't caught off guard. They didn't arrest him because they were more powerful than he was. Man, this was all planned out before the foundation of the world. God had a plan in place for man. And here he's telling them being delivered by the... He wanted to make sure they understood that they didn't just kill Jesus. They didn't just take him. No, this was planned. God had already planned this. By the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And so we see here that he presents the total sovereignty of God, first of all. And at the same time, he shows the complete responsibility of man. They're both involved here. God is sovereign. God allowed this to happen, but you're still guilty. You're still guilty. There was no escaping the guilt. They had murdered the Messiah. They had slain the very son of the living God. And there was no greater guilt than that. And by the way, every one of us are guilty of that. Every single one of us. We all are guilty for what Christ did there on Calvary's cross because it was for our sin that he died. We might not have been the person there arresting him. We might not have been of Jewish origin or Israelites. But every one of us is why Christ allowed himself to die for us. Crucifixion, verse 23, but praise be to God. I'm so great. It's such a wonderful message to see that he goes on to the resurrection. The resurrection. The resurrection. You know, there's many people that, that cry out throughout the ages. It's not possible to be raised from the dead. It's not possible. It was nothing more than a ploy. It was nothing more than, I mean, something that happened because the disciples, they propagated a lie and they stole his body and, and they, they faked the empty tomb. It's, it's contrary to nature. It's not possible, they say. <laughs> you know, it's interesting when you hear people say something like that. Because, you know, God, he takes the same position when confronted with the unbelief of men regarding the resurrection. It's not possible. Look at verse number 24. This is interesting. Look, he says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was, next two words, not possible that he should be holden of it. It wasn't possible. You say it's not possible he could raise the dead. God says it's not possible the grave could hold him. There's no power that could hold him. He is, hey, he is divine. It's impossible. He is God. God is not going to leave Jesus in the tomb. What a message to herald to the guilty multitude who stood there on the day of Pentecost. He is telling them the, the truth that he rose from the dead because it wasn't possible. The grave could not hold him. Look at verse 25. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover was my flesh, uh, my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. By the way, that's talking about the tomb. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Death could not hold the Savior. He rose again. David had given those prophetic words, speaking of that truth that would happen. And so he's quoting from David there in the Psalms. And then we see in verse 33, he speaks of his ascension. Look at verse 33. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, 
And having received the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. He hath shed forth this, that ye now see and hear. Not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but he also was exalted to the place of honor, glory, and power, seated at the right hand of the Father. He's telling them that. It reminds me of Philippians chapter, uh, chapter 2. Uh, go ahead and notice it if you would on the screen. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, of things in earth, of things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Peter is preaching to them, and what an amazing message. He he preaches to them about the incarnation, about Jesus came. It was God in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth. He he talks about his authentication, talks about the miracles that he performed as he was here on earth and all the things that he did, and then how that he was crucified, not because he was caught off guard or because he was overpowered, because he was was willing to go and to, to die for the sins of mankind, but he was not to be held by the grave. He rose on the third day. He was resurrected, and then he speaks of his ascension. Amazing we see this. What a wonderful message. But do you see how he concludes it? Notice if you would verse number 36. Look at what he says. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Both Lord and the Messiah. He is the Lord and he is the Messiah. God hath made him this. And it is for all for you to know. And so we see their glorification, giving glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. They had crucified him. God crowned him. They had entombed him. God enthroned him. They had cast him out. God caught him up. They had executed him. God had exalted him. He is worthy. And he is Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He is Messiah. And so what a wonderful message that we see here. You know, this is the same message that we need to share with others. The same message that people need to hear. It needs to be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. We need to have the power of the Holy Spirit of God in us. We need to be led by God. We need to know the Scriptures. Peter knew the Word of God. He was able to share it. We need to know the Word of God. We need to understand who Jesus Christ is. We have trusted in Christ as our Savior. We ought to tell people who He is. And He ought to be glorified in our life. He is worthy of all the glory and praise for what he has done in our life, for what he's done for us. And people need to hear that. And so, let all the house know, he says, he is Lord and Christ. We ought to let people know that. I'm going to stop right there tonight. Next week we'll continue on. We're looking at the miracle of the preaching, what God does through this preaching. But I want to go ahead and stop there. Let's all stand up if you would. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you so much, Lord, for loving us. Thank you so much for the message of the gospel. That you came in the flesh. You lived a life of absolute perfection. You fulfilled the prophecies of old, Lord. Everything that was to be fulfilled, you fulfilled it, showing that you were truly the Lord and Christ, Messiah. You died on Calvary's cross because of your love for us. 
you rose again because you were more powerful than the grave. Nothing could hold you. And Lord, I pray that we would truly glorify you with our life as you've ascended there to the right hand of the throne of God, making intercession for us. Lord, thank you for being our high priest. Thank you for allowing us to come in your name. Thank you for the privilege to know, to know that our sins are forgiven and the price that was paid. Thank you for loving us, Lord. I pray that we would desire to share that truth. Lord, that we would be a witness for you. Lord, that you'd be glorified in our life, that people would see it. That the glorification would not just be with words and mouth, but Lord, with deeds. And how we live our life and giving glory to you and sharing what you've done for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.